You are listening to a 14-week teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Acts. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that the Gospels were only the beginning of all Jesus did and taught. The book of Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth through the church, and this story is continuing today. This sermon series will address key themes in the book of Acts and connect them with our lives today. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. No, I really love winter. My wife and I are both kind of like fall, winter, mountain, you know. I, I, I uh, woke up this morning pretty happy that the, the snow was on. I, know, I didn't finish my sentence, but it's all right. I'll leave you hanging. Um, I, I woke up so happy this morning that there was snow on the ground, right? That I like woke up and it's white and beautiful and got my coffee and just enjoyed it. Um, I hate being cold, but I love winter, which is kind of, you know, it doesn't make sense, but um, I'm the guy who wears like, you know, four coats and three pairs of gloves and like I can't fit my shoes on because I have so many pairs of socks uh, on my feet and anytime there's like a fire, you know, I'm like right next to this. But I love winter. We went ice skating on Friday night. Um, You know, the dating never stops. So uh, went ice skating Friday night. You should have seen me out there. I'm so skilled. Um, You wouldn't believe it, just how gifted I am on ice skates. Um, these high school boys seem to think they were a lot better than me, but that's okay. I, you know, I'm out there, and I tried, I tried it looks about like that, trying to, uh, I tried to do one of those awesome, you know, like, stop quick things that the high school boys kept doing, and I thought, like, man, they're getting the girls' attention, like, get my wife's attention here, you know, stop quick for her, and so I was, I was practicing, you know, I'd skate fast, and then up to the rail, you know, try and stop, and I kept hitting my, but... So one of the times I was like, oh, I'm really going to impress her. So I, I was finally kind of getting it, right? And so I get up and stop quick and poof, just landed straight on my back. And <laughs> thankfully I'm young enough, I still recover, you know, but that's okay. Anyway, long story short, ice skating's great. Winter's great. Um, we own a two-family flat. The bottom unit has this hole in the window. So uh, I got to get that thing fixed up. If you're a homeowner, you know that there's like a never-ending list of things to do, right? I mean, you you, you kind of like buy a home and you pick it out and you're like, oh, this is the home. Like this, I love this place. Like I, I can't wait to live here and make it my own. And you kind of got this dream in your head of like what your home is going to be. And then you buy it. It's like the heater went out and the window's busted. And you know, you got you to tuck point the thing. You got to do all this stuff on a home. And even if you kind of get the dream home you want, like you've checked off all the projects, then something breaks, right? So it's like, it's never done. There's always something. I'm seeing you guys nodding your heads. Like, yeah, there's always something on the li- I got so many things I got to hang right now at home. It's not even funny, but um, keep me accountable, right? Ask me about it next week. Um, but in God's church, in God's kingdom, he's building something. He's got a home that he's building with us. Like Jordan said, that we're the home of God. We're the house of God. We're the people of his presence. And he's building something in us that actually he's wanting He's wanting to build a people for himself that stretches across every language, every nation, every tribe, every people group he wants for himself. And he's building that, and his his home isn't finished yet. And that's really what we're looking at in the book of Acts. We're looking at um, this truth that Jesus still has unfinished business to do, and he's doing it through us. Luke, the the author of Acts, he says, Luke 1, he said in the very first chapter, of Acts. He says, in my first book, O Theopolis, 
I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. His first book, you could guess what it's called, the Gospel of Luke, right? The Gospel of Luke, he wrote about Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection, about all his healings and teachings and who he was, what he promised. That's his first book. In his second book, he says, now I'm writing to you about what he's continuing to do and to teach the book of Acts. So that's where we're at in this book of Acts. We're looking at what he's continuing to do and teach through the church, through the church in the New Testament, through the, you know, the first church. And actually, that's a part of our history as well, because we're the church of Jesus Christ. We're the, we're the people of God. And so he's continuing to do it through us. If you want to get out your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's black Bibles on the chairs in front of you there. Um, if you grab that out, it's on page 930. We're in Acts chapter 20 today. Grab that out, page 930. While you're grabbing that out, I just want to set this up uh, for us a bit. In chapter 20, Paul's uh, on his way to Jerusalem. He, he, he's on this kind of mission to get to Jerusalem, uh, to appeal to Caesar uh, for his defense uh, of why he shouldn't be in prison because he's preaching. Really, he wants to preach Jesus to Caesar himself. Uh, and he, he has this kind of gut instinct, this feeling, I think I'm going to die when I get to Jerusalem. And so he's meeting with these pastors in the, in the book, in the, in the city of Ephesus, and he's meeting with them, and he, he, he's talking to them. He's saying, guys, this is the last time I'm ever going to see you. These are my final words to you pastors, to this church that was birthed by this good news of Jesus. These are my final words to you. I, I want to remind you guys, page 930 again, if you need it, page 930 in those black Bibles, chapter 20. He's saying in this, in this chapter, he's saying, I want to remind you about what I've done about how the gospel's been at work both in my life and through my life, about how I was with you when you were first Christians, how I was with you when you were first growing up in Jesus. Now you're pastoring this church. I want to remind you how I was so that you can be like that also. He's saying, I worked with my own hands. The, the gospel was powerfully at work in my own life. In my, he said, night and day, I taught you the scriptures. I preached to you about Jesus. And then in verse 32, don't look at it yet, don't peek. Verse 32, he kind of reaches the pinnacle of his speech with them. He says, and now I commend you. And he commends them to two things. But before we look at at what he commends them to, I I want us to get, I I felt like this was just so important. I want us to get how, how important these two things are. This isn't just kind of another statement Paul throws out there. This is his final speech with these pastors. He's going to his death and he's, he's commending them so that they can keep walking with Jesus, so that they can keep strong in the faith, so that they can bring others into the faith. And he's commending them to just two things. Now, if, if, if Paul was with us today and he says, this is the last time I'm ever gonna be with you, I want you to remember these two things. I want you to meditate on these two things. I want you to think on these two things. I want you to live by these two things, our ears, our, our ears would perk up, wouldn't they? We'd want to hear what those were. We'd want to pay attention to what those were. And this is what he says, Acts chapter 20, verse 32. He says, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So there's two big points here, right? Paul's saying, I want to commend you to God. And I want to commend you to the word of his grace. I want to commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And then he kind of goes in on this thing about the word of his grace. He says, the word of his grace is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So this this word of his grace, 
It's able to both make you strong, to solidify you, to make something in you that's sturdy, that's like a, like a pillar within you, unmovable. This, this word of his grace is able to put a strength and a resilience in you, able to build you up. I know for me, life doesn't always build me up, right? I mean, Sunday tends to build me up. Monday tends to break me down. Life tends to break us down. What he's saying is this, this thing, this word of grace, it's able to build us up again. I love vacation. I, I wish I could like hang out on the beach or go climb a mountain or I love that. But ultimately vacation doesn't have this power to build me up, does it? No, it just gives me rest. It gives me a break from what I'm doing so I can breathe again. But when I go back, I'm still the same person I was when I left. I'm still, I still have to, when I face the things at my job or face the things with my friends or my family, I, I haven't changed just from a vacation, but this word of grace is able to recreate something in us. It's able to build something up in us that actually makes us stronger, makes us more resist, re- resilient, gives us more joy, more hope, more, more, more something of significance inside of us. It also says that it's able to give us the inheritance among all the saints. I want to just pray for us real quick before I jump in here. Father, I, I thank you for this word of grace. I thank you for giving us this word of grace. I, I ask that you um, help us give attention to it, that you help us find joy in it, that you, Lord, that you, you, you make it a part of who we are, that um, it really comes down into our minds and our hearts and does a work in us, that this word of grace would build us up, that it would give us the inheritance among all the saints. Jesus, bless us. Continue speaking to us, just even as we look through this together. Amen. Amen. So what is this word of grace? I want to take a little bit of time just to go through what it could be, because there's a few different things that the Bible means when it says the word of God. And so I want to take a little bit of time to go through there, but what we're going to focus in on is what Paul's talking about here, which is the word of God's grace. So what does the Bible mean when it says the word of God? Well, it could mean anything that God says. In the Old Testament, this phrase, the word of God, uh, in the Hebrew would be the debar of God. So so you'd get these, these men of God saying, I have the word of the Lord. They'd say, thus saith the Lord, the Lord said to you, Hey, Israel, listen up. God's speaking to you. This is the debar of God. It's, it's used 394 times in the Old Testament alone. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, if you said, I have the debar of God, and then you were wrong, you got killed. So be careful saying you have the debar, you know. Thankfully, we don't, you know, play that game today. But um, if you were right, you were called a prophet. And then people would give heed when you spoke. But if you were ever proven wrong... It was over for you. So that's the debar of God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So in the Old Testament, it was one man speaking to people. It's just kind of God's way of saying, let me communicate my heart to you. Let me come and be in your life. Let me come and, let me come and speak to you. Let me direct you. Let me correct something that's not. In the New Testament, it's not just one man. But Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Today, if, if, if we call ourselves a Christian, if we've trusted in him, we're his sheep. So we have the ability to hear 
his voice. The, the Bible compares a relationship with God to a lot of our natural human relationships. So um, God's our father, we're his children. Jesus is our brother, our friend, our king. Jesus is, this is weird for about half of us in the room, Jesus is a husband to us, the church, his bride. It's weird, you know, for guys, but um, Jesus is husband to his church. If I were to call my wife on the phone at work and uh, she were to pick up and say, hello, and I said, hey, babe, it's me. How's your day going? What's going on? How are you, honey? She was like, who is this? I'm sorry. I'd start to get a little, you know, I was like, oh, it's me. It's Dylan. No, this isn't Dylan. I, you know, I don't recognize the voice. Can't be you. I'd get a little concerned. I'd start to get worried. Why doesn't she recognize my voice? If I was sitting on the couch next to her talking to her, and she kind of had this look on her face like, who is this guy? I was like, are you picking up what I'm saying? And she said, who are you? What are you trying to say? I don't get this. I'd get pretty concerned, right? I'd be like, your husband, you know, Dylan, what's going on here? In the same way, in our relationship with God, it would be odd for us to not hear his voice, wouldn't it? If, if Jesus is like a brother, if he's a friend to us, if God is our father, it'd be weird for us to not recognize and hear his voice. It, sh- it should be a part of our life with him. So the word of God could be anything that God says, any word that comes out of his mouth directed towards us. The word of God, this phrase, the word, could also be in reference to Jesus himself. John in his gospel, chapter one, verse one, this guy's like such a hippie. I love him. He, uh, he uses the Greek word logos for word, which really could mean message or report or the, you know, the, the meaning of what this guy's trying to say. So, so John, kind of like hippie of the disciples, is writing to Greek philosophers who are always sitting around asking this question, what's life all about? What's the meaning of life? What's the, hey man, what's the essence of life, right? Like, what's the whole thing about, man? Like, hey man, what's it, what is it? And John writing to them, he says, the word, the essence, the meaning of life. It, in the beginning was the meaning. And the meaning was with God. And the meaning was God. In the beginning was the essence. And the essence was with God. And the essence was, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Let me read it this way. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. It's a big question for us today as well, isn't it? It's a huge question for us today. What is the meaning of life? If my life has a purpose, if it has a meaning, if I was put here for a reason, what on earth is it? Is there a reason? Do I just kind of come into being and then fall out of being, and that's it for me? Is there something more? What's it all about? I I mean, it's a common question. Michael Jackson and Queen tag team the song, there must be more to life than this. Michael Jackson was digging with it. He understood there's something more to life than this. The top, one of the top Google questions asked is, what is the meaning of life? John here, he's saying the meaning of life is Jesus. The essence of what life, hey man, the essence, what's the, you know, what's, what's the thing all about? It's about Jesus himself. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This is the story of my life. I became a Christian about six years ago, and I can look back on me becoming a Christian, and I could point to that, and I could say, that's when I found the meaning of life. That's when I found what life was all about. That's when I found the truth, because I found him. 
right? That's when I found the truth because I found him. All other religious leaders, when pointing to God, they point away from themselves. But Jesus, when pointing to God, he pointed to himself. He said he was the bread of life and he is the bread of life. So the capital W, the word, could be referring to Jesus. This is the one we're going to focus in on today. The word could be the message of the gospel, which is really a message about Jesus himself. It's also referred to the gospel. All that word gospel means is good news. So the message of good news. That when Paul's writing here to this church in Ephesus, he's writing about this message of good news, which is able to build up and to give an inheritance among all the saints. We'll define that message here in a little bit. Finally, what some Christians would refer to as the the word of God, when they pull out their Bibles, they'd say, I've got the word of God. When they open it to read it, they'd say, I'm reading the word of God. This can be really confusing, right? Because it's like, what do you mean you're reading the word of God? Like, what is that? Hey, I'm reading my word, man. Dude, I was in the word this morning and the word was talking to me. And it's like, what are you talking about? What word are you talking? They're talking about the scriptures. And this can really be a hang up for some. Um, because in my own life, I give this book um, authority to change the way I think, to change the way I live, because I believe that the words in this book are the words of God himself. I believe that the the words in this book are words that God has spoken or directed men to speak and that were written down for my upbuilding, my encouragement, my instruction. And so when I come to this book, I'm looking for this book to be like a mirror on my life, to, to reflect to me where I'm not lining up with God, where I'm not thinking correctly, where I'm not responding correct, where, where I can be encouraged and built up in him. But if you didn't believe that this was God's word, that it was authoritative, that it was true, that it was trustworthy, and there came a point where you were reading this and it disagreed with something you thought or it disagreed with a way that you live, it would be really hard to give this book authority, would it not? It would be extremely hard to give this book authority if, if, if I didn't know it was completely trustworthy, if I didn't believe really, that it was accurate, that it was true. How could I believe that about a book that many different men wrote over thousands of years? How could I believe that it hadn't just been shaped a little bit, you know, that, 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 that the culture was just off and God's different now? Or maybe they just got, wrong a, li- got a little wrong here, right? How, how can I put such confidence in this book unless I know that it's true? And that's a really valid question. That, that is a super valid question. How, how can I know the Bible is trustworthy? And I just want to look at a few facts that have really helped me uh, stand firm on this, that the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is written by 44 different authors. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. So the Old Testament is the first section of the Bible. Really, the Old Testament is uh, everything from God creating uh, the heavens and the earth and, and everything that's in the earth and me and you um, to the story of God towards his people to um, everything leading up to the birth of Jesus. The Old Testament uh, is about that. There's actually a lot of promises in the Old Testament about how, who Jesus would be, how he would come, how he would live, how he'd be born, how he would die. Um, the fact that he would come back from the dead, that he would gather a people for himself. Uh, there's over 330 promises just in the Old Testament alone about the character and the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus in the New Testament fulfilled every single one of them. He fulfilled 29 of them in one single 
day. The Old Testament was written from 1900 BC to 95 AD. It was written in nine different countries in Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Turkey, Greece, and Italy. Uh, the Bible is the best-selling book every single year, hand over, but, but they don't put it on the bestseller list anymore because it would just lose its significance. It would kind of lose its, uh, you know, it wouldn't be relative anymore because it's like, hey, what's the bestseller this year? Oh, it's the Bible again. <laughs> surprise, surprise. It just would be, you know, it would kind of be a waste of time to even look at the bestseller list. So, you know, we just, it's kind of known Bible's the bestseller uh, every year. The, the Old Testament was clearly defined. So it was clearly, okay, this is the end of the Old Testament by 300 BC. So um, Jesus and the early church apostles, the early uh, Jesus followers, um, they all knew or, or would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They would have considered this to be the word of God, just the Old Testament itself. They believed that, that it was trustworthy, that it was true, that it was accurate. They even built the foundation of their faith in Jesus on what the Old Testament promises were. We had the, full, the earliest full Greek text of the Old Testament by 250 BC, the earliest full Hebrew text by 895 AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which were texts that were found in the Qumran caves between 1946 and 1956, so just 70-some years um, ago, they confirm that the Old Testament is accurate. They confirm that, yeah, actually what was written in the Old Testament, it, it was accurate, it was true. The New Testament, the, what we consider to be the canon of Scripture, so the whole of Scripture, the reason that uh, nothing can be subtracted, changed, or added to the Bible is because we have this canon of Scripture. What is, it's the whole of the authoritative Word of God which has been written down for our encouraging, our upbuilding, and our instruction. That was determined by 140 AD, and really the, the, the way that they determined what would be in the canon is, is what the early apostles and Christ followers considered to be the Scriptures, what they considered to be the Word of God. So the whole of the Old Testament, as well as some letters and books written by New Testament apostles and Christ followers. I want to give you a little graph that I found really helpful. It should be up. There we go. Uh, these are three different works or uh, documents that you could say, um, and I just want to compare uh, two of them with the New Testament itself, just so we can look. At, this, is, this is a big question. It, is it trustworthy? And um, to seek Tacitus, some pronounce it uh, to seek it, I, anyway, I'll call it Tacitus. Um, <laughs> he was a senator and a historian of the Roman Empire. He was considered one of the greatest Roman historians to ever live. Caesar's Gallic War, it's essentially uh, Caesar's documentation of his, uh, the wars that he engaged in against the Gallic tribes and then the New Testament. And essentially the way that you uh, consider the historical authenticity, the historical evidence of a book's accuracy is that you look at when it was written and when we have the earliest copy, right? Because if it was written, if I wrote a book 10 years ago about uh, presidents in the United States and you read it today and I lied a ton in that book, you'd be able to say, dude, that's not right. That's not true. I lived 10 years ago. I know that that's not how things went down, right? Well, in the same way, if, if these books were written in, uh, you know, 10 BC and they were found in 5 BC, you could say, oh, it's probably pretty accurate because people who are still living would have 
read that and known about it, they would have been able to confirm whether it was true or not. So that's one of the ways that we compare the accuracy of text. So Tacitus was written in A.D. 100. The earliest copy that we have is 1100 A.D., so about a thousand-year time gap. Caesar's Gallic War, written in 58 to 50 B.C., the earliest copy, 900 A.D., so about 950 years time lapse. The New Testament, earliest manuscripts in 40 A.D., the last that we are aware was written in 100 A.D., so the time gap is Oh, the, the earliest copies that we have, we found in 70 A.D. And the full manuscripts, we have them by 350 A.D. So 30 to 300 year time gap max. So not much of a time gap there. The other way that you can, tell the, you can determine the accuracy, the trustworthiness of a document would be the number of copies that you have. Right? If, we, if there's only two copies, I could have sat down with my buddy, made up a story, and then we've got our two copies. You don't know that it's that trustworthy. The more copies that you have, the more people that wrote it, the more people that affirmed, yes, this is true across different languages and nations, the more trustworthy you could say it is. Because there's more margin for error. There's more, uh, there's more gaps that could be missed there. So Tacitus... 20 copies, Caesar's Gallic War, 9 to 10 copies, the New Testament, 5,000 Greek copies, 10,000 Latin copies, 9,300 other copies. So the question, is the Bible trustworthy? Well, just on historical, logical evidence, yes, you could say the Bible is trustworthy. Now, I don't base my faith merely on historical, logical evidence, You could also say the Bible is trustworthy because millions, literally billions of Christians across the ages have said, yes, the Bible is trustworthy. You could also say that the Bible is trustworthy because God himself affirms that it's true. People across all nations, all time, since the scriptures have been written, have said, when I read this book, when I look at these words and I read them and I meditate on them, God himself comes and speaks to me. So the Bible is the authoritative word of God. That's what I've come to believe in my own life. That's what we believe in this church. That's what we build the life of this church upon. If there's something in this book that disagrees with what we think, then we line ourselves up with what it thinks. If there's something in this book that says we should see God differently, we should think about God differently, we should follow God differently, we'll come in line with this book. We won't just go our own way. We're building our hope on the authoritative words that God has spoken to us. So if these are God's words, then that means that none of us, we, ha- we don't have the right to subtract them, to add to them, to change them, to twist them, to say what we want them to say. But really, we only have the option, if we were to receive God, to receive them as his word ourselves, to submit our lives to what he's said. Paul in this chapter, chapter 20, verse 32, he says that this word of grace, this this gospel message that's told in the scriptures, this message about Jesus, about what Jesus has done for us, this this word of of God's (laughs) unlimited grace towards us, that it's able to build us up. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
I really love food. I love to eat. If you talk to my wife, she'll say I'm pathetic when it comes to not eating for any period of a time. Like, I think like 2.25 hours and beyond, I'm like a screaming child with a bad temper. And she asked me to do anything, like go get the laundry or go to the grocery store or, hey, can we stop one more place? And I'm like, no, we can't do anything until I get a snack. You know, and I, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a granola bar, or some gummy bears, or a piece of chicken. I just want some food in the belly. And I get really weak when I don't eat, right? Like, I get grumpy, I get weak, I get tired. What, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that actually as much as we, now I'm pathetic, right? So, like, I should be able to last longer than that without food. I've never actually starved a day in my life, but I've whined and acted like I've starved a lot of days. Anyway, but we are genuinely dependent on food. We need it in our life. What Jesus is saying here is, hey, we don't just depend on food. Actually, as we depend on food, in a similar way, we depend on every word that comes out of the mouth of God himself. If, if I want to grow up physically, if I want to get bigger physically, which unfortunately I am, um, working on that, if I want to get smaller physically, I eat less, right? If I want to get bizzer, bigger physically, I eat more. If I want to get smaller spiritually, I should eat less. If I want to get bigger spiritually, I should eat more. And, and the food that Jesus says I need to feed on to get bigger spiritually is the word of God. It's the words that are coming out of his mouth that are able to build me up. You know, the word of God also has the power to open the door of faith in our lives, some people say, oh, you have faith. That's amazing. I wish I had faith like you have faith. Oh, you have faith in this. Oh, I just, I'm doubting a ton and I just can't have faith. Some people think faith is kind of like this good luck charm. Like some people have it, some people don't. You're just, it's like a talent you're just born with. Like, oh, you have faith. What a gift. I don't have any faith. I wish I could get some. Well, you can. Paul says in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not something just some people have and other people don't have. It's actually something that we can receive by hearing. We need to hear the word of God so that we can have faith in the word of God. I know this happened in my own life. When I was um, a new Christian, probably not even a couple months old as a Christian, uh, my family and I went to New York and I was sitting in my bed um, reading the the Bible. I'd never read the Bible before. This is the first time I'd ever opened it. And uh, someone had told me to start in, in the New Testament, to just start in Matthew and kind of read through that I, I might be a little confused if I start, you know, so just start there. It's kind of where the story of Jesus, uh, his birth begins. And so I, okay, I'll start there. So I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I kept coming across all these stories of Jesus healing the sick. I kept I came across this story of a a man being blind and Jesus spits in mud and rubs it in his eyes and the guy's healed. He can see where where he was blind before. This woman with a blood disease for years upon years comes up to Jesus and just touches him. Gets totally healed. Or, Or this crippled guy, been lame from birth. Jesus says, get up, make your bed, walk, you're healed. And the guy's totally healed, gets up, makes his bed, walks And I was reading these stories and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's cute and nice and God, you could do that. And that's probably just a metaphor of the Bible and not really true. I I, I was really struggling to believe that these things could have happened and it wouldn't be like on the news every single day of the week. And then I went on a hike a couple days later in New York. And as I'm hiking this mountain, I I got to the top of a mountain. And if if you like to hike, you, you know 
kind of the ecstasy that uh, lives there, where you look out and you see all these mountain peaks, and you see this beautiful horizon. You just see all, it's just like, man, God and his creation, it's it's beautiful up there. And and as I'm looking out on this, I feel this thing just welling up in me, and it actually came out of my mouth. I said, God, if you created all this, you can do whatever you want. I, I believe that you actually did heal those people, that they actually did meet Jesus, and that did happen in their life. But here's the deal. I, my whole life, I didn't have faith in that. I didn't believe that that was true. When I read the scriptures, I was confronted with the fact that I didn't believe this. But because I heard what God was saying, because the, I heard the scriptures for the first time, I was able to have faith in them. Maybe you're lacking faith. A, th- a thing to do would be open the Bible and just begin to read it. Just begin to read what God says about himself, what, what has been testified about Jesus. Maybe faith would come into your heart as well. If all these things are true about the word, if it's able to build me up, if it's able to strengthen me, if it's able to give me this inner man that's like a pillar, resilient, it's probably good for me to, to read it often, is it not? It'd probably be good for me to build my life on this rock of the word and not go off building my life on other things. This isn't legalistic. There's no, how, should I read my Bible 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day? How many chapters do I have to get done to be a good Christian? There's nothing like that. We read the scriptures because we get to read the scriptures, not because we have to read the scriptures. And if you think about your mind kind of like a filter, like there's always stuff coming into it, kind of like an intake, there's, there's always stuff coming in and shaping the way we think and we live. A good question that I've found myself asking is, what is coming into my mind? Is it God's word? Is it God's voice? Is he telling me who I am? Is he telling me what to do? Or is someone else or something else telling me who I am and what I'm to do? Think of it maybe like an intake. Be able to tell how much is enough. How much of the word do I need to be building my life on it? How much of the word do I need so that it consumes me in my life? A few just practical things I've found really helpful in reading the scriptures and in getting a habit of feeding on the scriptures. One is to see it as a feast and a snack. Um, Every morning I have a time that I wake up, get a cup of coffee. I probably couldn't do it without the coffee. Um, I sit at my desk, I open my Bible, I just start to read. uh, And and I don't even have to ask the question, where should I read today? Because I have a Bible reading plan and I just read off of that. So one thing that's been really helpful to me, because most mornings when I wake up, I'm not like, oh, I get to read the Bible. Yes, this thing can feel like hiking a mountain to me. I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to read that. And where do I start? And we've got donuts. Read it tomorrow. It can feel like a huge job. But, but what really helps me is when I wake up and I don't have to think about it, but I can just do Right? So, so I wake up. I know I'm getting coffee. I know I'm going to my desk. So I've got a time. I've got a place. And I've got my Bible reading plan. It's not legalistic. Like, oh, I have to read every single chapter. God's not going to love me. But, but no, it's just, okay, this is like a launch pad for me. That's a big, maybe that's not a big question for you. That's a big question for me. Where do I start? Well, with a plan. There's a lot of good ones out there. With a plan, I know. This is where I'm going today. And I could read some and then get into praying or get into thanking God or just get into thinking about 
what I read. That's really all meditation is, is repetition of what you're thinking or speaking. That's meditating. What does this mean? What's that like? What does that mean about God? What's that mean about me? What's this mean about who I am? That's meditation. So having a time, having a place, having a plan, asking questions while reading, um, also just having some sort of a study Bible. I find the ESV study Bible really helpful. Just little comments and notes, and you can go to other verses. Um, really helps me. You know, you read about we're the temple of God. It's like, what the heck does that mean? What does it mean that I'm the temple of, you know, like people are going to come into me and pray? Or what's, you know, what's the deal here? But, but having a little notes like that with someone's brain who's, you know, a little smarter than me, it's, it's helpful. It's helpful for reading and knowing God as he is. So this word of God's grace is, has power to build us up. It's also got power to give us an inheritance among all the saints. I found this so interesting when I was uh, reading this and thinking on this, that Paul as a pastor is talking to pastors and he says, this word of God's grace is able to give you an inheritance among all the saints. This word inheritance, what Paul's talking about, he's, he's talking about a promise that many of us are hoping for. He, he's talking about a promise that many of us are looking for and that we're hoping we inherit someday, right? And inheritance is just, it's just a gift that's passed on. What, what Paul's talking about is the inheritance among all the saints here is he's talking about eternal life with God. He's talking about that this word of grace has the power to give us eternal life with God. But if you ever ask the question, am, am I gonna go to heaven when I die? Am I gonna be with God for, that's all heaven is, being with God, right? Am I gonna be with God for all eternity? Is that my future or do I have a different future? I get stressed out driving three hours in my car because I'm afraid the thing's gonna like clunk out on me. you know you need to check the oil Um, this is a bigger question is my faith is my life is it up to par with the rest of eternity if and that you know there's a couple questions that come before that do I believe in God do I believe God's good do I believe that there is an eternity but if you are on par with those things if you believe there's a God you believe there is eternity this question comes to mind am I good enough to be with God? Am I good enough to spend eternity with God? Has my life matched up to that? And if you were to imagine a ladder in front of me here, um, and the best people were on the top of the ladder, and the worst people were on the bottom of the ladder, so like very bottom of the ladder is like Adolf Hitler, rapists, child molesters, murderers, um, thieves, very top of the ladder is Mother Teresa, you know, your mom, grandma, if I said, where are you? Some of you would say, I'm a little above the bottom. Some of you would say, I'm way up there. If you were to ask me where I'm at, I don't want to tell you. Um, probably lower than you. Um, the, the question we have to ask is, when does bad become good, right? Because we said the people down there, they're bad people. The people up here are good people. When does bad become good? And, and then where are you on the ladder? And have you made it in the bad section or have you made it in the good section? Now, most of us would say bad's a little worse than I am and I made it into the good section. But is that reality? Does that really hold any water? Are we good enough to be with God forever? Has our life matched up to be with his forever? You may even start feeling heavy as I'm asking that question. No, I don't think my life is good enough. Or, oh, yeah, my life is. I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. 
But the beautiful thing is we don't have to wonder about that question. We don't have to wonder, am I good enough? God's made it clear in his Bible for us. Romans 3.23, Paul writes, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God's standard is actually higher than Mother Teresa's. It's higher than uh, your mom's or your grandma's. Actually, God's standard is perfect. And what he says is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So who's in the bad section of the ladder? Unfortunately, you and I. We're in the bad section of the ladder. We've made it down there with Adolf Hitler and rapists and murders, and that's offensive, really. Because if I were to ask you, are you a good person, and you said yes, and I said, actually, you're as bad as Adolf Hitler or a rapist or a murderer, that is really offensive. But what God's saying in his word is that that's the case. That in the bad section, we all fall. We all fall short of God's glory. And if we asked a few questions, we'd realize that's the honest truth. I haven't always loved God as I should. If he's perfect and good and right and he loves me and he's never done anything bad to me. When I look at my life in light of that, it's pretty gross. It's pretty filthy. So we've all fallen short of his Glory. Paul goes on in Romans 6 to say, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we looked earlier at what is this word of grace, this right here is the word of grace. That although we've all fallen short and, and the wages of our sin is death, so for being on the bad end of that ladder, we all deserve death. Although that's the truth, the, the good news, the amazing news of Jesus is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What this means is that no matter what we've done, I've done a lot of things that I regret and that I feel bad about. No matter what we've done, there's no scrubbing clean I can do. There's no removing of my guilt and shame that I can do. The thing that I deserve is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. What that means is that the free gift of God is Jesus was good enough He was so good. He never sinned. He was perfect in his love towards his father. And yet he came down to the bottom of that ladder. He got below Adolf Hitler. He got below a murderer, below a child molester. He became the sin of the world. It all fell on his shoulders. The shame and the guilt and the punishment for all that sin. It went down on him. Isaiah writes that he was crushed for our iniquities. I cannot imagine being crushed like he was crushed. Under under my sin alone, I feel crushed. Under the sin of all the world, I don't know how any man stands, and he didn't. He was crushed for our iniquities. (laughs) So that by faith in his name, we could be with God. So that by faith in his name, not based on anything I've done or you've done, actually in spite of what we've done, by faith in his name, we would be with him for all eternity because he loves us. That's the good news of the gospel. You say amen. It's amazing news. There's no better news in all the world than that. And really there's only one way to receive this news. It's by repentance and faith. Repentance feels like a really heavy word, but all repentance means is I'm turning away from one way of life, I'm turning away from one way of thinking, and I'm turning to a new way of life. Turning to a new way of thinking. 
That's repentance and faith. We all have faith. You guys are all expressing faith in these chairs right now. Faith just means trust. You're trusting that the chair is not going to crack and break on you. So we all have faith. An atheist has faith in their own opinions and thinking. I had faith in my own way of life. Faith in Jesus means that we're trusting, yes, you did become worse than I was so that I could be with you in a place I didn't deserve, so that I could live with you forever. So we receive it with faith and repentance. And actually, we can receive it today 